Support for Meaningful Conversations comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website, choose a template you love, and customize it by adding your very own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website, so create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Meaningful Conversations to get 10% off. I'm Maria Shriver, and this is Meaningful Conversations. On every episode, we'll take a journey into the lives of inspiring, thoughtful, thought-provoking people. People who are smart, spirited, and spiritual, people who have done extraordinary things to make a positive impact on our world. These are people I respect and admire, people who inspire me. I want them to share their stories, their experiences, their wisdom, and their feelings with you. I hope we can come together in community to reflect on the issues and topics that we're all thinking about, but no one seems to be talking about. I hope that you're inspired to have more meaningful conversations with the people in your life. How can we age gracefully in the world today? And more importantly, how can we age with dignity? I think a lot about these questions, and I know millions of other people do as well, which is why I was so elated that I recently got to speak with Mary Pfeiffer, the author of Women Rowing North, Navigating Life's Currents and Flourishing as We Age. Mary wrote one of the preeminent books for teenage girls back in 1994 called Reviving Ophelia, which I read and loved. Her new book, in her words, is a bookend that provides perspective and wisdom about what it means to be a woman later in life. Mary called me from her home base in Nebraska to talk about aging, the stereotypes surrounding it, and about how we can find more happiness and meaning as we get older. I love what she has to say, and I can't wait for you to listen. Welcome to Meaningful Conversations. Today, I am speaking with a woman that I am a big admirer of, someone I've read her work. I've been influenced by her work. She's helped me as a mother, and now she is helping me as a a woman in my demographic. Welcome to Mary Pfeiffer, uh, the best-selling author. Her book, Women Rowing North, is, I just looked at the New York Times bestseller list before I jumped on this, and she is on the New York Times bestseller list, and there is no doubt in my mind that that was the case. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. I should mention that Mary was also the author of Reviving Ophelia. Uh, If you have a teenage daughter, it is must read. I said that to my brother last night, and we we downloaded. He bought your book as we took our walk, Mary. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> he is the mother of, of the father, I should say, of a teenage girl. So, congratulations, Mary, on this book, Women Rowing North. What made you want to write a book about women uh, of this demographic? You said that I'm in that, so it's women kind of sixty and above. Yeah, I'm seventy-one. I'll tell you, seventy-one. I always write what I want to learn about. What generally sparks my writing is curiosity. And it turns out it's Uh a specific kind of curiosity. For example, when I wrote Reviving Ophelia, what I was aware of is the cultural stories about girls who were in trouble in 1994 did not match my experience as either a mother or a therapist. And the ways girls were behaving in therapy and my daughter and her friends were not understandable by the cultural reference we had at the time. There's a real disconnect between cultural information and the reality. And so that inspired me to explore that disconnect and try to figure out what was going on. The same thing's happening with this book. As As I got older, one of the things I noticed is a lot of my friends were saying, 
you know, this is the happiest time of my life. And they were pursuing wow. creative work. They were developing spiritually. They were having experiences that were fun that they never had time to have before. And I realized that the cultural scripts about older women, first of all, they're often misogynistic, but they're also yes. primarily scripts where we're defined by what we no longer have. In other words, we're defined by the fact that we're not as sexually desirable as women in our 20s right. or that um, our skin isn't as soft or that we're useless and in the way because we're no longer a part of the job market or parenting children. And I realized as I thought about this book that that is exactly the wrong story, that the real story is this life stage is um, catalytic for growth. It's walking into a portal where we have so much opportunity to develop our moral imaginations, our deep sense of gratitude for life, our sense for deep time and the long view, our own authenticity and self-acceptance. So that's what I wanted to do, Marie. I wanted to write about what I was actually seeing and experiencing with women my age. I loved that. Uh, I love that description, Mary, because uh, I myself have felt like, wow, I feel like I'm on top of my game. I feel free in a way that I never held before. I feel like I'm just getting started. I'm so excited. And yet I feel that the culture that I'm in is asking me to retire or wondering how I want to relax. And I have felt until I read your book, kind of like a fish out of water. And so I felt when reading your book, like, yes, I felt reassured. I felt like, yes, there's a community out there. Yes, there's so many other people out there who feel the same way. I'm not out there on my own. Well, thank you. That's a real compliment. I went to a piano concert yesterday, and it was at the Lead Center in Lincoln with Emmanuel Axe playing piano. And as I was walking back to my seat after intermission, this woman came up to me, and she was really very small, maybe four feet eight, but about my age. And she said, Mary, everything you said in that book is true. And it made me so happy because what she was really saying is the experiences you're describing fit my own experience. I don't argue that this is life stage is always happy. What I argue right. is that this life stage is filled with challenges. But what's mm -hmm. different about these challenges, and I don't know about you, but for example, I officiated at my first funeral of a friend this last month. Mm -hmm. And most people I know are coping with some kind of physical diminishment or mm -hmm. working around some kind of issue that would not have been a problem when they were younger. Right. But what happens is we oscillate almost daily between having to adapt to some new information that makes us sad or, or anxious and also having daily moments of real gratitude and savoring life. So that oscillation is really important for the growth spurt we're able to happen. Have in this yeah, I think stage. understanding that there is an oscillation. You wrote, and I underlined this, attitude is not everything, but it's almost everything. Yeah. We can see clearly that we, do not, uh, that we do not always have control, but we do have choices. And then you wrote in here, I'm engaged in a hopeful process. And so I think what you're saying, what I gleam, and I think it's important for people to understand is that, yes, you're confronting losses. Friends die. Friends get sick. Uh, there was one great chapter in here where you talk about the loss that a mother felt when her, her daughter uh, moved away with her grandchildren mm -hmm. and that that was, you know, cataclysmic. It was a loss. No one died, but kind of her center moved away from her, right? And mm -hmm. then we're experiencing all kinds of, in one day, highs and lows, joys and sadnesses, news that we can't almost understand coming into our lives. And that you talk about the importance of being good on your own and also having the tools the very important tools that when you find yourself, you can use these tools to soothe yourself, keep yourself company. Talk about the importance of uh, learning how to be alone. Well, I talk about the difference between loneliness and solitude. And we right. know by looking at just demographic information 
that as we grow older, we almost all spend less time with people. There's years when, especially if you have children and you're a working mother, you're out in the environment all the time interacting, and you're lucky if you have time to get to a bathroom and have a little privacy every day. But by the time most women are 70, their children are gone, and they have more opportunities to be alone. All of us feel lonely sometimes. I think being lonely is part of the gamut of human emotion experience. And I never urge people to run from their emotions. I encourage mm -hmm. people to right. learn from their emotions. But what I do talk about in the book is we have the ability and the choice to convert a great deal of our loneliness into solitude or into, for example, altruism. And right. one thing I do when I'm gloomy and kind of lonely and, and just feeling like, mm, what's the point of this particular afternoon or day, is I'll think, who is there out in the world that would appreciate a telephone call from me? And I can right. always come up with somebody that if I give them a call, they're happy to hear my voice. So that's kind of a reaching out when um, we're lonely. But there's also so many beautiful uses of solitude. And one of the things that's really important part of being happy at our age, Maria, is, is knowing how to create joy for yourself when you're alone and knowing how to build a good day for yourself that has kind of the right mix of different things happening. So that, I think, is a really important thing that you try to emphasize throughout the book is self-empowerment, really, about yeah. you have the choice how to build your day. You have the choice. You talk a lot about narrative. Yeah. Um, you, you have in here, I underlined, we don't become our wisest selves without effort. Our growth requires us to become skilled in perspective, taking on managing our emotions in crafting positive narratives and informing intimate relationships. Talk about why it's so important to craft a positive narrative. And you talk about really that being something that we all have to, at some point, change our narrative and look at it through a different perspective. Right. Well, first of all, just going around a day, I believe we find what we're looking for. So if we wake up in the morning and our story about our lives is we're pitiful people with very little possibility for an enjoyable day. Most right. likely that will be the case. But I, I, at least for me, I wake up, have a cup of coffee, and I do my best to set my intention to have a certain kind of day. And for example, one intention for a day could be, I'm going to look for evidence of love in the universe. Or another intention for a day could be, I'm going to do something entirely spontaneous all afternoon. Just make a decision. I'll do whatever I feel like this afternoon and surprise ourselves by what that turns out to be. One thing I talk about is we can't change our past. Whatever happened to us in the past happened to us. But we right. can change our stories about the past. And I that's something that. I learned being a therapist is people come into therapy with very problem-saturated stories. They're a loser, they're unpopular, they don't have the social skills to date, or they grew up in a dysfunctional family and they're doomed mm -hmm. to a life of loneliness. And right. one of the main jobs for me with, with a client like that would be to say, well, let's work on this story and let's find some people in the past who loved you and let's look back and think about some things you're really proud about and some victory moments in your life and let's figure out if we can't, I call it in the book, crafting resplendent narratives. But if we can't come right. up with a story for you that gives you more power and agency and hope. So I talk about that in the book, that right. we can use stories from our past to comfort us. We can use stories for moral clarity. For example, my mother was someone who believed that morality was action. And she'd say... Morality is not empty words and talk about doing good deeds. It's action. And she was a doc in a little town, Beaver City, Nebraska. And she would be out all night long sitting by an old farmer at his house while he died. Or she'd come home late at night and get a call at 3 in the morning and take off for a hospital. And I saw her do those things. And so for me, 
remembering my mom and remembering how she responded to calls for help, that's, that's a good story for me to remember about my own past. On Mary, the- you mentioned in the book uh, that there are many lifetimes in mm. a lifetime. And I thought that that's, I remember my mother saying to me, you know, life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You don't have to do everything all at once in that decade or in one year. And I think um, so many women of different ages that I speak to are like in such a hurry. I've got to do this. I've got to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect employee, mm-hmm. the perfect daughter, the perfect caregiver. the perfect, And they're running themselves ragged, mm-hmm. unaware perhaps that there are many lifetimes in a lifetime. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that many lifetimes in a lifetime? Well, actually, in that case, I'm talking to the whole idea of continuity of self. And for example, when I was at Berkeley in 1969, I was wearing short skirts and a headband and high heel sandals. And I sold my blood once to buy a pretty dress I couldn't afford. Well, that Mary, that seems like almost a different person to me. And the same, the Mary who was a young mother and the Mary who was trying to get her career as a psychologist established. And when we look back on our lifetimes, we can see some sort of overreaching arc. But at the Mm -hmm. time we're living, we don't really know what's going to happen next or where we're going to go. And the the turns and twists my life have taken, and I guess this isn't true with you, are totally unpredictable. So I actually think that all life stages are hard. I've talked to my teenage granddaughter, Kate, who's in high school, and I've said, I think I'm happier now than when I was an adolescent. I'm probably happier uh-huh. now than any life stage except when I had love, young children. I really love that life stage. Yeah, but me I, too, me too. But when I look back, there's not a life stage, there's not a decade that wasn't really difficult. Um, The interesting thing now for me, Maria, is I like exactly what I liked when I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I liked to read books. I liked to be outside. I liked to talk to people. I liked to be with my friends and family. And that's exactly what I I like to swim. That's exactly what I like now. So it's kind of funny to see that 10-year-old girl back in my life doing what she always liked to do. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. Stress is a worldwide epidemic. We're working longer hours, we're inundated with the constant news cycle, and we're more connected than ever before. Stress is a part of life, and it can also very easily affect our overall well-being. That's why we're proud that this podcast is sponsored by Calm, the number one app to help you reduce your anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More than 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. Calm offers a number of tools to help you relax, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories for adults, and even soothing music. So head to calm.com slash meaningful today. And listeners of this podcast will get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription. That's unlimited access to all of Calm's content at calm.com slash meaningful. Get calm and stop stressing. Now let's get back to the conversation. I love that you kind of talk to women about, it's really, I found, as I said, the book super reassuring that there were so many women having similar experiences than the one I felt I was in. And yet there's so many women who feel like, gosh, I have so much to give. And yet the society I live in, or the country we live in, really doesn't want to hear from me or doesn't want to have my participation. Do you think the same is for men of the same age? You know, I I don't want to talk about men. I haven't done a lot of thinking (laughs) about them, and I don't have the authority to say something really reflective. 
But I do want to say something about women our age. And okay. that is, if we're dependent on external validation, we're in trouble. Because most, I'll use my age, most 71-year-old women do not get much external validation from the world. And so uh -huh. one of the things I teach in this book is if we're going to be happy, we learn the self-care skills and the internal validation skills we need to make ourselves happy. You know, I tell the story of the, the old jazz singer, Jane Jarvis, who I visited. Right. And she was in a tiny little room in a, in a, she couldn't walk, so she had to be helped from her bed to her piano near her bed. And when I went to visit her and was talking to her, at some point I, I felt sorry for her. Her window looked out on a wall, and I said, Jane, are you happy? Is there anything I can do for you? And she said, I have everything I need to be happy right between my ears. And that's really what I argue is, is the best plan for women our age. I also make a very strong argument for gratitude, that yes. it's not a fuzzy, nice virtue that we, we do, you know, we have to be good or nice people or something like that. It's a survival skill. And if you can be grateful in, in almost any situation and find something to appreciate and enjoy, you're, you're really on your way in terms of being happier. One of the things, being useful to other people, one of the things I did in this book was tell a lot of stories about how women yeah, can be true. useful. And so, for example, I interviewed a, a woman from the African American Center that was mm, probably 75. She lived in a tiny little house she'd lived in since she was a girl. And she did what she called porch activism. And that meant that when there were children on the streets, she was out on her porch keeping an eye on them and inviting them <laughs> to come up and talk to her. And after school, when kids got out of school, she noticed that a lot of the kids were, were swearing all the time and weren't being particularly good to each other. So she started walking up and down the street talking to kids. And she'd say, now cut that language out. Talk like there's an old lady in the presence of of you, and she started making relationships with these children, you know. And right. um, I have got a friend when her mother went into a nursing home. Her mother was really sad about that situation, and my friend said, "You know, Mom, your job while you're here is to cheer everybody up." And I believe that Maria, we can always define a way for ourselves to be useful. It's it's a question of intention. And if we want to yes, be useful, I, we can find a way. I love that, that uh, you talk about survival skills, uh, that we need survival skills as we age. Uh, you need to set an intention for the day, practicing gratitude, knowing that you can be alone and spend time alone, uh, knowing that you can rewrite your narrative so that it works for you, that your mind is your greatest companion, right, your asset that every stage of life may be difficult, but how you look at it, how you talk about it, uh, makes a big difference. You, you write in here, which I thought was really good, you ask the question, what is a good life? And you talk about how there's a, a woman who compared happy lives to meaningful ones. This is a oh, yeah. podcast called Meaningful Conversations. And you wrote in here, happiness is about feeling good and getting what we want. On the other hand, meaningful lives often involve suffering and self-sacrifice in the service of a transcendent purpose. Happiness seekers are unhappy when they don't get what they want. Meaning seekers can survive negative events. So are you? is the question we should be asking is how do I live a meaningful life and what does that mean to you, Mary? Well, I, I personally think that our need for a sense of purpose and meaning is just right there with our need for oxygen. And um, I think it's just, for me, it's part of getting out of bed in the morning is thinking there's something I can do this day that's going to make a difference. And right. it can be it can be small or great depending on the day and our opportunities. But I think that sense of there's some way I can be useful, I have some purpose in being alive, is just critical. And if you've ever spoken to someone who doesn't feel that way, they're absolutely miserable. So I think that's really important. Another thing I want to mention when we're talking about survival skills is managing expectations. Right. Because 
um, well, I'm thinking about something I wrote about in the book, that when I was a girl, I wanted to buy a little chihuahua puppy that came in the yes. teacup. Did you ever see that when you were a girl? It was a kind no, of advertisement read... in a magazine uh-huh. that showed a right. chihuahua in a teacup. And it cost a dollar, and you sent off. And I was probably about seven or eight. And I begged my mother for a dollar. And she tried to explain the meaning of a hoax. But I just wanted my little puppy so much. She finally gave me a dollar. And I I wrote off for that puppy. Well, of course, it never came. I'd sit in the porch and wait for the mailman day after day. And that puppy never came. And one thing I say about women our age is, we don't wait for puppies in the mail anymore. We have a pretty good sense for what a reasonable expectation is. For example, in my case, one of my reasonable expectations is that my children do not particularly want my advice and that if I offer them advice, it's most likely not to be well-received. In fact, almost no one wants my advice, a little bit now that I've just written a book, but I'm talking about no one in my personal life really enjoys my offering opinions. Another reasonable expectation is that every day there's going to be a difficulty or problem or an issue coming up. But if we can manage our expectations, uh, like say around a holiday, that if we have a big, complicated, extended family at our house for two days, somebody's going to have something happen between them and another person, we're more likely to feel good when when there's some bumps in the road. Yeah, I, I think the other thing, what you just said to me, I thought was super interesting when I asked you about men and you said, I don't want to talk about men. And this is really about women rowing north. And yet so often women, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they see their selves very often in terms of, do I have a man? Am I in a relationship? How, who's going to be with me when I grow old? And you're really writing about an age when a lot of women are alone. Right. They're single, widowed. Is that a big issue, you believe, for women of a certain age to wrap their heads around like, okay, I'm alone. Uh, I may be single, widowed, and I didn't really see my life without a partner, without a man. Well, I think generally all of us are lucky as we age if we have somebody who's at some level willing to help take care of us if we need some help. And that can be a partner. And certainly if I lost my husband, I'd be really sad for a long time and have a lot of difficulty coping with that. But one of the things I suggest, Maria, is that women friends are essentially a mental health insurance policy. And repeat that, repeat that, Mary. Yeah, friends women are, friends are essentially a mental health insurance policy. And mental one of health the things, insurance policy. Yeah, I love that. One of the things we can all do is cultivate friendships with women, and have women's groups, and have women that we're friendly with, so that in the event we're not uh, with a partner, we don't have children or grandchildren nearby, we have people that care about us and are checking into us. For example. Um, a friend of mine who lost her husband in the last couple months has a friendship with a woman who also lost her husband last year. And these two women call each other every day to just see how they're getting along. And I think that's really good. That's a really good way to cope with that kind of loss. You know, one thing you haven't mentioned that I want to mention is there's a lot of humor in our age group. Yeah, I was and, just going to ask you, you have a line in here where one of the women, she goes, I'm so tired of these effing growth experiences. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that was going to be my next question, because there was a lot of humor in there in how people look at the blankety blank that's happening in their life. Or, you know, kind of, I found myself saying that I'm so tired of these effing growth experiences. I'm oh, having. sure. Which is a funny line, isn't it? Uh, yes, it because is Because you have line. a growth experience when you suffer. and. We all, we all grow when we suffer, right. but we don't necessarily like the cause of our growth. Well, for example, one story I tell in the book is about my friend Yolanda's mother, Eve, who had never taken drugs in her life. She didn't take over-the-counter right. drugs. She was hospitalized one night. And when she was dying of cancer in a hospice, Yolanda asked Eve, 
if she takes some morphine. And just then the doctor came in and said, we want to give you some morphine. And Eve started to say, no, I won't. And then she's seeing her daughter nodding, go for it, mom, go for it. So she agrees, and the doctor gives her a shot of morphine. And she looks, Eve looks at Yolanda and says, I've made a terrible mistake with my life. I should have taken drugs a long time ago. And they yeah. both had a laugh. Well, that's a beautiful thing to be able to do on your deathbed. And one of the things that struck me was that, that women use humor to flip what's a very difficult situation into something that's workable. And that's kind of the core lesson of this book, I hope, Maria, is that everything is workable. That we have seven, in many cases, seven decades of building resilience. And we come from a long line of resilient hominid ancestors. I mean, we're lucky we're all here today because 30,000 generations of mothers and fathers have raised a child who raised a child who raised a child so that we could be here today. So I, I really give, I, I think what happens is if you don't realize your potential to grow, if, mm -hmm. if you don't have encouragement to see your own resilience, you're not likely to grow as fast as, you, as if you do. So one of the things I wanted to do in this book is say, there's a sense in which old age is emergency, but it calls for emergent behavior. If we don't grow bigger, we grow bitter. But we all right. have the possibility to grow bigger and have these transcendent experiences that, that really help us become the wise people we've always wanted to be. More meaningful conversations in just a bit. These days, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. With all the noise around us and in our lives, you may think you just don't have time to read a book or to develop yourself any further. Well, Blinkist is here to help. Blinkist is an app that takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes. That way you can read or listen quickly on your time. Blinkist is made for busy people like you and me who want to get the main points of a book quickly without reading or listening to the entire thing. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now. And for a limited time, they have a special offer for our audience. So go to Blinkist.com slash Meaningful Today to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Dot com slash meaningful to start your free seven-day trial. Now back to the conversation. You write that when I told my friends I was writing a book on older women, yeah. they immediately protested. I'm not old. What they meant, you said, was that they didn't act or feel like the cultural stereotypes of women their age. Old meant bossy, useless, unhappy, and in the way. Our country's ideas about old women, you write, are so toxic that almost no one, no matter her age, will admit that she is old. In America, ageism is a bigger problem for women than aging, right? So Absolutely. how, yeah, so what do women, because you, you mentioned in there, you say women of a certain age or women are age. And how do we get, like, women are afraid to mention their age. You talk about women, you know, having plastic surgery, not wanting to look their age. So how does all of that go with celebrating your age, being triumphant in your age, and rowing against what society is telling your friends and your communities and yourself about aging? Well, you know, American society for, oh, a long time, at least probably 50, 70 years, has deeply miseducated Americans about the nature of happiness. And older people are the victims of that miseducation as much as anyone else. And we mm -hmm. can internalize these cultural scripts and feel like we're a former, we're a diminished version of our former selves. Mm -hmm. Or we can look at some new ideas for scripts. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book 
is say, much like I did with Reviving Ophelia, they're kind of bookend books because what I really want to say with this book is we're having the wrong conversation about aging. And the way it's being framed by the culture is not only punitive, but it's, it's causing an enormous loss of potential in individual women and in the culture. Now, I don't know what to do about America, and I don't think anybody knows <laughs> what to do about America. But one of the things I try to do is I'm very upfront about my age. And I, I'm, you know, when women go something like, oh, you're not old, I go, well, I don't mind being 71. And I don't, I don't call my friends old because I don't want them to feel badly. But I, I make a real effort to talk about the experiences I'm having as an older woman. And most right. of them are positive. It's, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm not seeing myself, nor am I seeing almost any of the women I know as victims. I see us as people have a tremendous power to make ourselves and other people happy. And mm -hmm. we actually have a moment when we can, after long lives of serving others, rewrite our, our sense of, of how we want to be in the universe. And mm -hmm. for example, I talk about my Aunt Agnes in the book, who when I was a girl, I'd go help her cook Sunday dinners before our whole family came over. And she'd get up at five, she'd go out and kill chickens, she'd pluck them, she'd cut them up, she'd fry them, she'd make biscuits, she'd make pancakes, she'd make fried potatoes and sausage and so on. And then all this family show up and sit around a big wooden table at their farm in eastern Colorado. And Agnes would never sit down. She would never sit down. She just circled the table, refilling empty bowls and water glasses and coffee cups. And that's how we were educated to believe good women were, that they took care of mm -hmm. other people. Well, nobody really taught us to take care of ourselves. And a lot of us really start learning that in our 60s that we have the power to create the kind of days we want, that we have the power with intention and attitude to set an agenda that's going to make us happy, and that we can say no. One of my gifts to myself is I'm really never in a room anymore where I don't want to be. Mm -hmm. And the same with we give ourselves the power to say yes to that, that voice deep inside us that's saying, I want to do this or this means something to me. So for Why do you think it is, Mary, that because you write about understanding ourselves, getting back in touch with the girl, that mm -hmm. what she used to like, self-acceptance, understanding, as you said, that there are lifetimes in a lifetime, emotions, multitude of emotions in a day, being good at navigating all of those things. What do you think is the biggest misconception amongst women about aging? First of all, most women are happy, and we have the research that Older women are the happiest people in this culture. There's the J-shaped curve that shows as, as we age right up until almost our death, we get happier and happier. And we're happier than older men for a variety of reasons. So we're mm -hmm. the happiest people in the country already. And I think Yippee. It, okay. <laughs> I think it really comes from the fact that we've had so many years to figure out how to do things in efficient, organized ways. We've had years of making social connections. We've had years of sorting ourselves out and emotional processing so that we start really having a sense for how to be happy. And uh, it isn't necessarily an intellectual process. I mean, for example, one thing I found, I really made an effort to interview women of all different income groups and right, uh, right. different races. And mm -hmm. one of the great myths in America is wealthy women or upper-middle-class women are happier than poor women. That mm -hmm. wasn't my experience at all. I mean, of course, I wish every woman in this country had a really nice place to live and access to good health care and healthy food and everything she needed to be comfortable and happy. That's not under my control. I, I don't really have mm -hmm. much control over that. But the thing I didn't notice was we all are able to experience the entire gamut of human emotions. And that means that women who look to have very lucky lives in terms of income and homes and health care and so on 
can certainly manage to be really depressed and sad and mm -hmm. feel that they're in a deficit life. And on the other hand, some of the women I met who were very poor financially had very rich lives because they'd, they'd spent most of their life figuring out how to be happy, and, and they were real good at it. The people in the book that had suffered the most were the people who made the most use of gifts like feeling grateful. So it was really interesting for me to discover some of this as I wrote the book, Maria. That it was, in, that you felt, which is, I think, I think the misconception that women are unhappy with aging is a wonderful misconception to get rid of. And I think kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mary, the kind of takeaway that you want women and maybe our culture to understand about aging is that it's much more embraced than we think it is, that there's much more use for us than we think there is. There's much more of a community out there than we think there is. There are many people who are still working and thriving and finding meaning than we think there is. And that perhaps it might be this generation of women who knock down ageism, who redefine who are actually doing it, not even knowing it, redefine what it means to age in this country. Well, I, I think so. And Maria, I'm, the, I'm on the cusp of the baby boomers. I was born right. 47, right after the war. And our generation is this big demographic bulge that moves across the last 70 years of, of our country's history. And we've done everything different. You know, we're, we're a large group. We went into young adulthood with high expectations for ourselves and the culture. And I think that just as we've done everything else different, we're, gonna, we're going to insist on new ways of looking at ourselves. One of the reasons is simply that when I look at my mother as an older woman or my grandmother, the ways they coped with life, the kind of lives they had, I respect them, I admire them, there's things I can learn from them, but they don't actually have a lot of use in my current situation in 2019 with possibly, say, 30, life, 30 years ahead of me of a lifespan. So I think we're, we're going to almost by default need a new set of paradigms and ideas. One other thing and I... Language, and language, and language, right? And language. New languaging. One other thing I wanted to mention is... One of the reasons I think we're happy is we know the runway is short. And yeah. Laura Christensen did this work that showed that the shorter we think our lifetime is going to be, the more beautiful and meaningful it feels to us. And I, I think that's true. I, if you've ever known anyone who was near dying, everything is, is really poignant and meaningful to that person. The other thing that comes with that sense of, of finitude is, at least in my case, one of my sayings right now is, eventually is no longer a word to me. I used to go, well, eventually I'm going to spend more yeah. time in art galleries, or eventually I'm going to slow down and start meditating. Well, if I want to do something, I do it now, because I, I don't assume there's this long, long future for me. And I think that's part of the gratitude, too, is just waking up in the morning and just being so grateful to be alive and have another day on this extremely interested, complicated planet we live on. Yeah, you wrote also, which I thought was that several of the people you interviewed had struggles with their children, children suffering from addiction or mental health issues, leaving home, and that uh, how those women survived the uh, loss, in many ways, of their children. Was there anything that you gleamed about the difference in happiness when it came to women who had had children and those who hadn't? I'm not sure I can answer that question right that, right that way. I think that what I would say about women who have children who love them and are connected to them are very happy with that. Uh, right. There's women with children who aren't happy with it because they feel a great sense of sadness and failure and anger and so on. But it's interesting. I, I write about this when I write about grandparenting. Adult children are almost always problematic in some way or another, no matter how much you love them, no matter how much you enjoy them. 
they stay problematic. They're children to you, and they have their issues. And I think that's one place reasonable expectations come in handy, that if you think you're going to get along great with your adult children all the time, you're likely to be disappointed on a pretty regular basis. The other huh. line I quote on adult children is Margaret Mead's beautiful line that that grandparents and grandchildren get along very well because they're united against a common enemy. Yeah. And I think that's very true, too, <laughs> that, that the parent often yeah. is sort of a, a difficult person in that relationship. I know a lot of women who, are, who are, don't have children. And mm-hmm. what I found is they, they do a variety of things. One thing they do is they have some relationship to younger people, which is very important to stay happy. They're teachers or they're mentors or they've got nieces and nephews or they've adopted a family next door that loves them and is engaged with them. And then the other thing, of course, a lot of women do who don't have children is they make some other aspect of their life very beautiful and sustaining so that it's all right for them. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting. I was talking to my brother who runs Special Olympics the other day, and I was telling him about the book that your book and how I was reading it and how there seems to be kind of these two parts of our society, those people in their 20s and teenagers and 20-something who are trying to change the world, who have all this energy and these ideas, and they're partnering up with people who are in their 60s and 70s who now have the wisdom and the time to create all this change. The people who are their 30s, 40s are knee-deep in parenting and have no time. But there's this beautiful partnership that's occurring between boomers and whether they're millennials or the one end of the millennials. And that that image to me was so beautiful that there is this desire by young people to be connected to people who are aging and those who are aging feel connected to people who are in their 20s and that there are things we can do. And we see that in a way almost playing out somewhat in our politics, mm-hmm. um, That's good. in That's our true. community organizations. And um, I think that's a really important thing to get out there, that there is a desire uh, with both generations to work together mm-hmm. and that, that it's actually happening out there. We don't hear that much about it, but that you see it. And my brother was saying he sees it every time he goes to a school. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually wrote a book called The Green Boat about my group's environmental action in this state. And the group had a really distinct demographic. There were a lot of people my age, and especially the women. We tend to have bigger houses. We know how to cook a pot of soup for 25 people. And we have connections that are very valuable to young people with, with, you know, I've lived in my town since 72, so I just know a lot of people by now. And then on the other hand, younger people bring in all these social media skills and that young, fresh energy and set of ideas. And it's it's a very beautiful and natural kind of combination. You know, in general in this country, we would be so much better off if the generations were intermingled more. We have yes. four-year-olds in one set of rooms. We have 80-year-olds in another. We have many young adults who have no real relationships with adults in their lives that could help them and guide them. And I I think that's really sad. And I'm always advocating for anything that has younger people and older people working together. I think that's one of the most beautiful things um, that when you say advocating for things that people can do cross generations, I think this whole book, if I might sum up, is advocating for women of a certain age who might be aging, whatever the right terminology is, is to see themselves in a new light. You're advocating for us to change our narratives, to look at our gifts, to look at the fact that we're in control of how we see our days, that we are powerful, useful, we can live lives of meaning, that we understand ourselves and that we have gifts uh, that are still really useful. And that if we're looking for the world to validate us, we're looking in the wrong direction, that we can validate ourselves, that we can have friends that validate us, uh, we can have meaningful activities that validate us, and that the best is yet to come. Is that a correct 
Well, uh, that's a beautiful description. I can tell you read the book very carefully, and I really I did. I underlined it. I, I appreciate your description. Dog aired it. I I found it. I'm going to send it to all my friends because I think it was. I think we have to advocate for each other, and I think um, advocate about our role in the world, and to advocate. Uh, that there is still so much we can do. And most importantly, I think that, that women conventionally advocate for themselves, that we don't have to spend all our time caring for somebody else, that we can lay that down and let uh, others care for themselves and begin the work of advocating for ourselves. I think so, too, and I hope our conversation to, together today, Maria, furthers both of our goals. Well, thank you, Mary. As I said, it's an honor to speak with you. I have uh, I was so excited to hear that you had written a new book. I wouldn't be one of your friends that said, no, 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 don't write that book oh. because I think we need your voice. <laughs> thank your you. voice is so important because it's a you're a writer, as you said, a therapist, curious and observer of life. And we do need a new language. Uh, we're the biggest generation, right? Boomers. Uh, we're dealing, so many people are dealing with caregiving right now of boomers. Boomers are getting sick, but boomers are continuing to change what it means to uh, stay active in our years and reinvent the concept of aging. So it's an honor for me. As I said to Mary, do you ever come to Los Angeles? She said, no, I'm taking my advice and staying put and kind of doing what I want. So I said, I have to come to Nebraska to see you. And you said, yeah, you would, you but would, I'd be you welcome. Could. You would be welcome. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much, Mary. I'm so proud of the book that you're on the bestseller list. It's no surprise. The article you wrote for the New York Times was one of the most popular in the paper's history. And so, uh, you're getting a lot of external validation, so bravo. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Meaningful Conversations. One of my favorite poets and writers is John O'Donohue, and one of my favorite poems of his is called For a New Beginning. I thought I'd read a few lines to close out this episode because I believe that we can always get to a new beginning no matter what stage of life we may be in. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease and risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you. I hope you found a little inspiration in those words and in my conversation with Mary Pfeiffer today. If you're looking for more inspiration and words of wisdom, then please sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Sunday Paper. It's free and it's good. So just visit my website, mariashriver.com, to subscribe. I hope you'll also check out my book, I've Been Thinking, and its new companion, I've Been Thinking, The Journal. Like this podcast, those books were created to help you on your path to a meaningful life. More details on my website about those as well. And thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being in community with you again right here each Monday.